What I want to do for you this morning is I just want to walk through three of the significant steps, if you will, or three of the significant uh, events uh, that is common to the life of a believer. We're going to talk a little bit about the sovereignty of God, and then we're going to move on from there. Now, um, there's going to be a lot of scripture thrown at you today, so you really don't need to try to keep up and turn and follow and all that stuff. We are going to spend a moment or two in Romans chapter 9. So if you do want to turn there, uh, we will spend a couple minutes there, but then we're going to be moving on. So I hope you have your track shoes on. We're moving pretty fast. The sovereignty of God simply defined is that God is the creator and the Lord of all things. And as such, he has the ability and the freedom to do whatever he pleases with his creation according to his will. Okay? Now that is illustrated several times in the scriptures. One of the first ones that came to me that I'd share with you comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. And you remember this parable about the laborers in the vineyard. There's an owner of a vineyard. He goes out several times during the day to hire laborers to come work in his vineyard. Goes out early in the morning and hires some. Goes out a few hours later, hires some. Later in the day again, at the end of the day, he hires even some more. And they all make the same, he makes the same deal with all of them. We're going to pay this, he ends up paying the same amount of money for their labor. Now at the end of the day, uh, his foreman lines up all the laborers, laborers that were in his vineyard that day and gets ready to pay them. And they all get paid the same amount of money. And the first ones who have been out there all day begin to grumble. He said, what is this all about? You know, you hired these guys at the end of the day. They've barely been out there for an hour. We've been out here slaving in the hot sun all day long. We should get more. And so the owner of the vineyard says, hey, look, you know, you and I had a deal, right? You agreed to work for this amount of money. They agreed to work for this amount of money. I'm not being unfair to you. Or is it that you really just begrudge me my generosity? Is that what's going on? Now, the point of the parable is this. It's really not about money. And it's really not about equal pay for equal work. It's about the sovereignty of God as it relates to salvation. Hmm? And he ends up saying, look, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. So those that have come to the Lord who have been believers for a very long time and served the Lord for a very long time, and there will be some who, quite frankly, aren't going to make a decision for Christ until they're on their deathbed. But each is just as saved as the next and over which we should just be glad and joyous that that's the way God is, his salvation for everyone. To Romans 9, now this is kind of the go-to passage for those of us that have settled in on the sovereignty of God. And in Romans 9, to kind of sum things up, Paul is giving several illustrations of how God demonstrates his sovereignty. And he says first, it was a sovereign decision of God that he intervened so that Abraham's wife, Sarah, would have a child. God also exercised his sovereign ability to make decision, sovereign decision-making when he chose Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau. He anticipates the question and says, is God unjust then that he makes these kinds of decisions? And says, may it never be. And he picks up the argument, and if you want to follow along in Romans 9.15, Paul quotes Exodus 33, 19, and he says, as God was speaking to Moses, says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16, he goes on and says, so then, it does not depend on the human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, that I may display my power in you 
and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he has mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, anticipating an argument, Paul then poses the question. He says, you will say to me then, therefore, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now, this is kind of akin to saying, well, that's not fair. Now, I'll give you a little story here. Well, I was teaching a Sunday school class one time, and I got in a little bit of trouble. I upset some people when I suggested that God's not necessarily fair. Okay, the question was posed, is God fair? And in my own little compassionate manner, I said, well, that's really kind of a stupid question. <laughs> okay. So I'm not sure exactly how that question relates. Is God fair? To suggest that we need to determine whether or not God's fair would suggest that we have to look to some kind of a standard that's outside of God to compare him to that standard to decide whether or not he meets that standard that we like or not. So I told him, I have no idea whether God's fair or not, but I do know that God is holy and he is just and he's righteous. I'll take that over fair any day, any day. So Paul continues and says, why then does he still say fault? Uh, find fault for who can resist his will. Verse 20, Paul says, but who are you, a mere man, to duck back to God? What will, what, will what is formed say the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Or has the potter no right over the clay to make the same lump from the same lump, one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? <clears throat> God gets to do exactly what he wants to do with that which he owns, and he owns it all. Now, Romans 9 was one of those passages for me that appealed to me intellectually. It's kind of like, okay, God's sovereignty, how does this work? Who gets to make decisions? There it is. It's laid out in black and white. God is sovereign. I got it. Went right here, right? But in terms of impact, it had a much more emotional impact on me would be the exchange that happens in God's conversation with Job, right? So to recap the story for you, Job is, by all other accounts, a righteous guy, Loves God, wealthy guy, has everything going for him, got a great family, got all kinds of possessions, rich man, has all kinds of uh, respect in the community. And one day, Satan finds an audience with God. Now that itself is a whole other conversation for another day, but Satan finds an audience with God and says, the two of them together, let's consider Job. Loves me, he's a righteous man, da-da-da. Satan says, well, look, I'll tell you what, it's no wonder that he loves you because you gave him everything. I mean, he's got it all. You know, he's got a big house, sports cars, big screen TV. He's got all the stuff. And besides all that, you protect him. You've got your hedge around him, and he is totally untouchable. But I'll tell you what, if you drop that hedge for a while and let me have him, I'll make him curse you to your face. So the deal is finally struck, and God says, okay, do whatever you want, but you just can't kill him, right? Can't kill Job. So as the story goes on, Job is devastated. He loses everything, absolutely everything. His children are gone. All of his possessions are gone. He's inflicted with all kinds of physical ailments and sores and boils, and the scene just becomes miserable for Job. Now, unfortunately for Job, and I say this kind of tongue-in-cheek, unfortunately for Job, he has a wife and three friends who aren't necessarily a whole lot of help, right, if you know the story. 
Now, the mindset theologically at the time was that if you were suffering, then it must mean that you've sinned, a great sin, and you haven't confessed it. So you're suffering, you have to have sinned. So Job's three friends go ad nauseum on trying to convince him to confess what his sins are. And his wife, sweet little thing that she is, finally ends up saying, Job, why don't you just curse God and die, right? A little less than helpful was she. So finally, though, in this whole exchange, Job is defending his righteousness, right? Defending his righteousness. I've not sinned. In fact, it gets to the point where Job starts uh, bragging about himself a little bit. I've had, I'm respected in the community. While there are people that would just stand in awe if I even spoke to them. I was a guide to the blind. I was the feet for the lame. And on and on he goes, right? Pride is welling up in Job. Now, it gets to the point, though, however, that in this little defense, Job begins to blame God. We'll pick it up in chapter 30. Job says to God, I cry out to you for help, but you do not answer me. When I stand up, you merely look at me. You've turned against me with cruelty. You harass me with your strong hand. You lift me up on the wind and make me right it. You scatter me in the storm. Yes, I know that you'll lead me to death. Now, God responds and poses to Job over 70 questions demonstrating God's greatness and Job's insignificance. I'm not going to go through all of them. I'll give you some highlights, right? 38, chapter 38 of Job. The Lord answers Job from the whirlwind. I remember reading this. The whirlwind is essentially a storm. God shows up and answers Job from a storm. And I remember thinking, Job's in trouble. Job's in big trouble. And he was. God says this, Who is this that obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man when I question you, and you'll inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? What supports its foundation? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Have you ever in your life commanded the morning or assign the dawn its place so it may seize the edges of the earth and shake the wicked out of it? Have you traveled the sources of the sea or walked in the depths of the ocean? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of the deep darkness? Have you comprehended the extent of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Does the hawk take flight by your understanding and spread its wings to the south? Does the eagle soar at your command or make its nest on high? And on he goes. There's many more. Then at a point in chapter 40, God begins to demand another answer from Job. Right? He says to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who argues with God give an answer. So he's saying to Job, What have you got to say for yourself? Job does answer and then says, Job answered the Lord and said, I am so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. I have, once, I have spoken once, and I will not reply. Twice, but now I can add nothing. 
Now notice, Job hasn't repented or said he's sorry for a thing yet, right? He's kind of buying time. Maybe they hope that this will go away. Job replies again, or the Lord replies again, and in chapters 40 and 41, to sum up, God uses the example of some of his creation to, again, demonstrate Job's insignificance. He names a couple of creatures, one called Behemoth and one called Leviathan, right? Now, uh, for the sake of discussion at this point, Behemoth is some kind of huge land animal and Leviathan is some kind of a, an ocean creature of great magnitude. There's some de debate about what those animals really were. Not important for the discussion. But God's point is, Job, I created you and I created them and you have absolutely no control over them whatsoever. None. In fact, relative to Leviathan, he says to Job, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, why don't you just reach out and pet that one, right? He says, you'll remember the battle, and you'll do it no more, right? So in essence, he says, you try to reach out and pat, and pet this one, you're going to draw back a stump, right? And I'm in control, but you are not. So then finally, Job replies to the Lord, and ultimately says, I know that you can do anything, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is, this, who is this that conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things that I did not understand, two things, one, things too wondrous for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. I heard reports about you, but I heard, and now I have seen you with my eyes. Therefore, I reject my words, and I'm sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. Job repents. So, believer, you're harboring a little pride, as we all do. Where were you when God established the earth? We're going to answer that for you a little later. Stay tuned. Now, two things are very uh, apparent from this discussion about Job. Number one, of course, that God is sovereign. But secondly, it also demonstrates the chasm or the canyon that exists between God and humankind that he created. Huge gap. God desired fellowship with the man that he created, so something had to be done to bridge that gap. Now here we're starting, again, to start talking about the heart of the gospel message here, right? And that bridge, as was pointed out in some of the songs that we sang this morning so appropriately, that bridge was not something we, that we could span ourselves. We could not do that ourselves. So God provided a way and from the sovereignty of God, he gave us the love of a Savior. Born in the fullness of time, born of a virgin, fully God and fully man, tempted as all, in all things as we are, but yet without sin. And it pleased God to give him. Pleased God to give him. Paul puts it this way, Philippians 2, 5 to 11. Just listen along. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who existed existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient even to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow 
in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the heart of the gospel message, the good news. Good news is this, that God is holy and perfect, and we are born into sin. Sin came into the world by one man, the first Adam, and we inherit that sin. Romans 3.23, you're familiar with this, I'm preaching to the choir. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A holy and perfect God requires our sin to be atoned, that is, paid for, requires it to be paid for, and as we've said, we cannot pay that price ourselves. Ephesians 5.21, Paul declares that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, so how can a spiritually dead person make a spiritually positive decision? Can't do it. I like to keep the message of the gospel very simple. John 14, 6, Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. Right? Now, we've got, what does that really mean? Let's unpack it for just a second here. Right? It means that Jesus believes that there is a Father and that the distance between us and the Father needs to be narrowed. We need to be able to come to Him, and there's only one way that that can be done. And the truth that He is provides the life that we can have through the way, through him being the only way. That's the story, right? Now, I want you to notice the nature of the statement here, right? It's very exclusive, if you will. I, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one, no one, keyword, comes to the Father but by me. Now, as you travel along and you have the, uh, the opportunities to present the gospel, as I'm sure you are doing, you're going to run into those that, I, that are called relativists, right? Relativists like to say, well, if that, whatever topic you're talking about, is true for you, it's not necessarily true for me. Can't play the relativistic card on this one because of the exclusive nature of the statement. The way, the truth, the life, no one, and that includes even your opponent, your relativist, no one, including you, comes to the Father but by me. Can't let them play that card. In essence, this, the statement tells us that there is a God. He desires that we come to Him, and Jesus is the truth that leads to that way of life. Now, we're left to decide, is that true or is it not? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Is it true or not? Now, if we say it's not true, then we have, in essence, then assigned the title of liar to the greatest source of truth, the greatest moral teacher in the history of mankind. That's what we're left with. But then if we say true, this treatment is true, well then what? Again, verses you're familiar with, Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Good news part, part one. Saved from what? What does that mean? Well, saved from, save from sin. Right? We've discussed that. Saved from ourselves, and we'll be saved from the wrath of God to come, which again is another total another subject for another day. But one of these days, God's going to clean up the mess. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. He's going to remake heaven and earth. And each and every one of us is going to live forever, the issue is, is where will that be? Where will that be? Good news part two. 
if we say this is true and we claim salvation in the name of Jesus Christ, then we are placed in the hands of a loving Savior. One of my favorite verses, John 10, 29, says, My Father who has given them to me, speaking of believers, John, Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now, the picture that's being drawn here, the, the image, is that God has placed believers in the hands of a loving Savior, like this. It's got you right here. And then God comes along and places His hands over those hands, right? And there you are, secure forever in His love, right? That's the word picture. Now, I would just pose to you this morning that if you are not a believer, or if you're not sure where you stand in your relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, then if you don't take anything else away from the message that we're sharing this morning, then take this with you, right? God loves you, sent his son to die for you, and today is the day of salvation. Today is that day. You can see me, or Pastor Larry is here, uh, there are any number of people here that can, can uh, meet with you right after the service. I'll stick up here if you want to talk about this. But don't leave today without knowing that you've got that relationship secured, that you are in those hands, and the Father's hands are wrapped around you. Okay? Today's that day. Don't put it off any longer. You know, there's a, I've, I've, always, I've used this analogy before. It just seems to be so appropriate within each, within each and every one of us before we come to know the Lord. There's a God-shaped hole right in the middle of your soul. And only God can fill it. And the only way it gets filled is that you come to him in humility and recognize his son as Lord and Savior. That's how that happens. See me about that today. Don't, don't leave here without this today. All right? For the rest of you, I'm preaching to the choir. Amen. <clears throat> now, third step, third step. Sovereignty of God, right? Salvation in His name, right? In the hands of a loving Savior. And for those of, you, those of us who believe, we have now been given the incredible privilege of being part of the family, the, the uh, body of Christ, right? Which usually shows itself in a local assembly just like this one. We have the privilege of being here together, worshiping together and encouraging one another in the body of Christ. Right? Now, I've heard it said, and I've been faced with this argument before, is that I don't really need to go to church to be a Christian. Right? I've got my relationship with Christ is, you know, secure. So church is really not that big a thing. Don't have to do that. Well, while I may not want to question their salvation based on such statements, I will question their lack of obedience to the Word of God. Hebrews 10, 24, and you're familiar with this verse. It says, let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. What day approaching? The Lord's return. The closer we get to that day, we need to be found busy doing his work, right? And that happens in a local assembly more often than not. Now, the other thing too is there are a bunch of verses, I call them the one another's, that just describe 
what we're supposed to be to one another, right? Let me run through a few. We are members of one another. We are to love one another. We are to outdo one another in showing honor, to live in harmony with one another, promote peace and what builds up one another, to accept one another, instruct one another, greet one another. When you come to eat, welcome one another, serve one another through love, carry one another's burdens, bear with one another in love, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, submit to one another in the fear of Christ, encourage one another, and pursue what is good for one another. Now I just ask you, how do you do that by yourself? You don't. Now, I understand there are exceptions. There's physical limitations for some people, and that kind of, I get all that. But for most of us, this happens in a local assembly that we are committed to in order to be able to, to be to one another what he calls us to be to one another. Now, I want to give you a couple of tips for good fellowship in the body of Christ. Okay? A couple of tips here, two or three. Maybe more if something occurs to me. Now, I'm about to give you a little marital advice, too, for you married folks. You single folks, don't let this escape you. Take notes. You may be there someday. All right? Your good fellowship in the body of Christ for you married folks be, actually begins at home. It begins at home. Let me give you 1 Peter 3, 7. It says, Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with the weaker partner, showing them uh, honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. So that your prayers will not be hindered. There's the key there. I'm going to suggest to you that if you and your spouse are sideways with each other and your prayers are hindered, your ability to function and minister in the local body will suffer. It will suffer. Men, you're also to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Right? Men, she needs to know, she needs to know and be assured that she's loved and secure. I'm going to give you a little advice here. I know you didn't ask for marital advice, but I have the pulpit today, so hang in there. A daily prayer, right? Now, I try to do this every day. I'm not perfect at it, but... I, I give it a shot. Put your feet on the floor every morning, men, and pray these two things. For greater love of God and greater love for your wife that day, Lord, show me one thing just today that can help me love you more and love my wife more today. The phrase I try to use most of the time is, Lord, what can I do today to make her life just a little sweeter? What is that? Let me have it today. And men, and I don't know why this is so hard for many of us. I've heard this complaint from men for a long, long time. You've got to pray with your wife. You've got to pray with your wife, and you need to do it daily. You really do. And set up some kind of a daily devotion. Now, I, I, I'm going to use my beautiful wife and I as an example here, not because I'm trying to brag or anything, but it's something that we stumbled onto a little over a year ago. And it, it, I'm just telling you, it is just, it's freeing, it's liberating. Every night before we go to bed, we go through a devotional together, and we pray together. Now, the reason that becomes important, especially for me, 
is that I get to an opportunity on a daily basis to get to know her heart that, just more, that much more. Right? It's very freeing. It's liberating. You get to the point where you understand and you have confidence in your own mind that there isn't anything that I couldn't tell her. There's nothing on my heart as a burden that I can't share with her before the Lord. You grow together that way. It's an incredible experience, and I'm just encouraging you to do that. Pray with your wife daily, go through a devotion, and share with one another the things that are on your heart. Wives, you're not off the hook. <clears throat> Maybe we need to level the playing field a little bit here. Okay? Um, wives, did you know that your husband's a sinner? Did you know? This is audience participation time. Come on, did you know? Oh, there you go. Men, did you know that your wife is a sinner? Oh, one, brave man, <laughs> right there. Yeah, the rest of you are going, oh. If I say yes, she'll be mad at me. If I say no, she knows I'm lying. <laughs> there you go. All right, so if you're here with your spouse, here's what I want you to do, right? A little exercise for you. Just a little inside joke between my wife and I. I want you to turn to your spouse, each of you, and say this. Honey, I am a sinner, and I am all yours. Go ahead. Honey, I am a sinner, and I am all yours. There you go. Now we've just leveled the playing field. Here we are. We all got our issues, don't we? Yes, we do. Ladies, you're not off the hook. Ephesians 5.33 says, to sum up, Paul says, each of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband, right? So while the wives may need to know that they are secure in their husband's love, ladies, your husband needs your respect. It's a biblical principle. He, she, he needs to know that you appreciate his spiritual leadership of your home, right? And please, if you don't think that he's stepping up to the plate like he should, don't do it yourself. You take this before the Lord, your daily, daily devotional, and in your prayer time with him, you share your concerns. Just don't step up to the plate and start taking his role. He needs respect. He's made that way. He needs to know that you appreciate his leadership and guidance as a spiritual leader of your home. Wives, pray for your husband daily. Pray that he would be filled with God's wisdom and the boldness to face each day. Okay? Tip number two, fellowship in the believers. You got to show up. Pretty simple. You got to be here. And you got to be here on time. Ephesians 4, Paul says this, and he gave himself, and he himself gave some to be apostles, and some to be prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. Now, many of us may not see ourselves as apostles or prophets or evangelists, but there's plenty of indication from both Paul and Peter through the scriptures that he expects mature believers to be teachers, teachers of the word. You should be teachers by now, he says, but still you, you, you can't get past the milk. You're supposed to be teachers. And in order to be able to do that, we need to come together in order to be able to share the word and the things of the word, right? On Ephesians 4, verse 16, he says, from him the whole body is fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for building itself up in love by the proper working of each individual part. So in that verse, he uses a couple of phrases. Every supporting ligament 
and each individual part. What's he talking about? Us. He's talking about us. You've heard the analogy of Paul using the body as the analogy for the working of the uh, fellowship of the believers, and each of us plays our part. Each of us plays our part, and none is more important than the other. And so each of these, your supporting ligaments and each individual part, he's calling on us to do our part, the fellowship of believers. Now, lastly, I'm going to suggest, and I would guess, that more than likely, some of your best friendships are going to be developed right here out of the body of Christ, right? Some of the people that you care about the most are going to get developed right here, right? Members of Lakeshore. So if you want to have good friendships, I'll give you a little tip here. You must first learn how to be a good friend. First learn how to be a good friend. I'm going to illustrate a point here with two or three scriptures, right? 1 John 4, 19. It says, we love because he first loved us. Romans 5, 8, and 10, it says, but God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in verse 10, Romans 10, 5, 10, 4, if we were all, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? So what's the point? In all three of these verses, it points to the fact that God moves first. He always calls. He always initiates. He always chases. He always loves. He always tugs. He always is looking and seeking the lost. And he seeks our attention and love as well. God always initiates. You want to have good friends? Be a good friend and initiate. That's the pattern I believe God has set up for us to follow. Reach out first. If you're going to walk into a church and think that, unfortunately, you think everybody's going to just gravitate to you because you're so cool, not likely to happen, although it may. This is a very warm and welcoming church, but if you want to have good friends, reach out. Reach out, initiate, invite, right? Take people to lunch. Look for new people who you don't know. Even if they've been here a long time, even in a church our size, I'm still amazed at how many people I don't know personally have been here two years. Continue to reach out. If you don't know someone, it doesn't matter if they're a visitor or not, go introduce yourself. Reach out. Initiate. That is the key to good friendships in the body of believers. It's up to us to initiate. So, let me sum up with this. Believer, where were you when he laid the foundations of the earth? I'll give you the answer here. You, believer, you were in the heart and the mind of a sovereign God who placed you in the hands of a loving Savior who then wrapped his hands around the Savior's hands to secure you and then he placed you in the fellowship of believers. He gave you an opportunity like this to grow, to learn, to become more like him, to encourage one another. And Paul sums it up this way, Titus 2.14, and I'll close with this. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works, eager to do good works. It's not about us. 
It's about esteeming others greater than ourselves, and it's about serving a sovereign God in a local assembly.